Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That? With me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere. And uh, you'll find us both on Instagram. He is at Neil Delamere Comedy. I'm at Dave Today FM. And the show is at Why Would You Tell Me That? Wherever you're listening to this, we'd really love it if you would follow, subscribe, whatever the language is around that on whatever platform you like, listen to us. And you'll be the first to know all about the latest Why Would You Tell Me That? happenings. And we are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. Today, I am excited to say I've had to do no work. I mean, I'm so excited to hear what Neil's <laughs> podcast journey is today because it's his turn to wow us and see whether or not he can answer the question, why would you tell me that? I think I'll be able to do that this week. In part two, we're going to talk to Professor Pete Lunn of the Economic and Social Research Institute. And he's a behavioral economist with degrees in philosophy and psychology, neuroscience and economics. But I passed my driving test first time. So like, who's the real winner, Dave? Who's the real winner? <laughs> we get really qualified people on this podcast, which we do not deserve. Thank you no. to the really qualified people who come on. He's going to talk to us about why you might be closer to discrimination than you might think. Ooh, that's interesting. So he's going to talk to us about minimal group paradigm, which is basically the minimal conditions needed for a group to be formed. And then how that influenced the formation of social identity theory. Social identity is a person's sense of who they are based on group membership. So you're a Man United fan, you're a man, you're a radio broadcaster, you're Irish, all those things and how they interconnect. It's not as complicated as it sounds, but it is profound. So today's pod is all about groups in part one as well. So one of the ways to cement the group identity of a nation state or even an empire is through propaganda, right? And lionizing heroes. So let me introduce you to Dr. Leonid Rogozov. Ever heard of him? No, I mean, I do speak Russian. I did study Russian in college, but I did an awful lot of business Russian and not an awful lot of kind of traditional way you'd study a language by learning history and art and culture. I bypassed all those things to learn how to say balance sheet and profit and loss account and what do you mean you've transferred that into an offshore account? Uh, but apart from that, I really didn't do any of the cultural stuff. So, How, how do you say it? the ruble is tumbling in Russian, <laughs> which is going to be useful at, at nearly all parts of Russian history, from what I've read. Um, this guy is very interesting. He became a Soviet hero. So let me take you back. It's 1961, right? He's part of the sixth Soviet Antarctic exhibition. Exhibition? Expedition, even. I mean, there's no point exhibiting there because there was nobody there. So decided... <laughs> the least with attended an... <laughs> exhibition in the history of exhibitions. You've never been to my early Edinburgh Fringe Festival shows. <laughs> yeah, it's an expedition, yeah. It's a 12-man team, right? Okay. Uh, the journey from Russia has taken 36 days. You see, this is something that amazes me about Russia sometimes because obviously we all know Siberia is in the Arctic Circle. We know that, you know, Russia gets very cold. When I lived there, I remember waking up uh, on, I think it was, yeah, it was November 1st, night after Halloween, and there was just six feet of snow. No snow on the 31st, six feet of snow on the 1st of November. It was phenomenal. Uh, I ended up being outside in minus 36. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Not a good idea. What happened? Like bits, like eyes freeze shut. Yeah. So, so my, yeah, you're right. So the little bit of moisture you have on your eyeball got onto my eyelid and froze shut. And so my friend had to take off his two pairs of gloves 
and put his absolutely frigid fingers on my eyes because they were slightly warmer than the outside of my eyes. And then that eventually thawed them out enough that I could reopen both of my frozen <laughs> eyelids. So, yeah, it gets cold. You would be no good along with Dr. Leonid in Antarctica. 36 days together, no. 36 days together, right? They're setting up base. There's not many people around. There's not much happening there in Antarctica at the time. The penguins are in the corner reading scripts. I've never even been to Madagascar. Nothing <laughs> has happened yet. So they've set up the base. He starts to feel tired and weak and nauseous, right? But he's been 36 days on the road. I'm not surprised. I'd be the same. And he's probably freezing. He is pretty cold. But then he gets that worrying, strong pain down the right side of his abdomen. And he's a doctor. Oh. So he knows that that is. It's appendicitis. Now, right. he can't go into his local GP for obvious reasons because he doesn't have a medical card. <laughs> so, he so he decides there's one thing he can do. Because what do you do? You're in the middle of the Antarctic. What do you do? You take it out yourself. You don't take it out yourself. Yeah, yeah. At yeah. the very least, you talk somebody through taking it out. You don't take it out yourself. I suppose he looked at the 11 other people on it and went, well, it can't be shaky Bob or Snowblind Pete. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's got to be me. The lads have already had 15 bottles of vodka today. They're definitely not taking my appendix out. Imagine the skill you'd need to just get through that sort of medical procedure. Oh I'd say he could, I, he could play Operation Through the Carbar Box for the, rest, <laughs> for the rest of his days. But he decides that this is what he has to do. And his, his diary is brilliant at the time because I did not sleep at all last night. It hurts like the devil. A snowstorm whipping through my soul, wailing like 100 jackals. Wow. Uh, still no obvious symptoms that perforation is imminent, but an oppressive feeling of foreboding hangs over me. This is it. I have to think through the only possible way out to operate on myself. It's almost impossible, but I can't just fold my arms and give up. So he decides to do it, right? Yeah. His commander has to get permission from Moscow for him to do the operation. Because if it goes wrong, Moscow is going to say, oh, this is a propaganda disaster, PR right. Let's just see. Yeah, he gets the nod. He's going to do it. He has to give him... I know, I, by the way, I know exactly what I'd do in that situation. I'd be like, just, just don't psych yourself out. It's just like any other operation. It's just like any other operation. And then I give myself general anesthetic. I pass out and I die. <laughs> that's... that's <laughs> That's what would happen because he couldn't he couldn't give himself general anesthetic no. obviously so he gave himself local anesthetic a little bit of local yeah a little bit of novocaine and starts cutting see the, like like I know this is going to be one of those stories you know of just incredible human effort but you said the words start cutting like how do you get to the point novocaine or no where you hold the scalpel over the area which you need to make the incision and then push it into like I don't I don't possess that level of bravery I couldn't do it but he goes into this zone and he plans it methodically he has two assistants at the end of the bed one is holding a light and one is holding a mirror so he can see what he's doing my god so thinking about that you're cutting your own skin and muscle and everything while everything is backwards in the mirror stop I can't even use a scissors with my left hand. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is looking at his own abdomen, but it's too awkward. He can't do it. Oh. Because everything's the wrong way around and it's too slippery and all the rest. So he takes off his gloves and he cuts his appendix out by feel. Ah, stop. Yeah. Just uses the knowledge he has of the internal workings of that area and goes, reach in. Oh, that's the one. Slice that off. Wait, it was yeah. my spleen. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's just remarkable. It's just, I've seen pictures of him. It's, it's just as well he was a slim man. It, he could physically actually do it. Get because, in, yeah. I mean, that is not listed as the main downside of obesity ever. Like, you're 20 stone, but what if you have to take out your own intestines? That never comes up. I, I, I wonder about this dude, like, was he ever, a, was he a mean man or was he a miser? I mean, there's no indication that he was. Right. But both you and I know men mean enough that are so mean that if they successfully performed the surgery on themselves once, <laughs> they would never visit a doctor ever again. No. They would continue, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. We're probably thinking of the same prostate exam. No, no way, my friend. <laughs> Stuck my own finger up my bottom. <laughs> Where are my marigolds? Where are my mar pacemaker? I shoved a double A battery into my belly button and I sewed it up with a zip. <laughs> so he takes it out. Just imagine, right? 
there's two guys at the end of the bed holding the mirror and holding the light. He's uh, there's, some, there's another guy taking a picture because I've seen a picture of the operation. He has cut out his own appendix. And this is the only bit that I disagree with him on. He says, finally, here it is, the cursed appendage. With horror, I noticed a dark stain on its base. That means just a day longer, it would have burst. My heart seized up, noticeably slowed. My hands felt like rubber. Well, I thought it's going to end badly. And all that was left was removing the appendix. Whatever about the rush of adrenaline, the Novocaine having an effect, the understanding that I must get this sick thing out of me. Once it's out, you then have to stitch up the bit of you that you've cut and then the rest of your body. How do you have enough energy for that procedure? Well, what's remarkable about about this is I, I kind of disagree with that last bit because I think I think you want it to look wrecked. I, I think that justifies your decision to remove it. What you don't want to do is feel down there, cut out your own appendix, hold it up, and then go, this is the pinkest, healthiest organ I've ever seen in my life. Look at it. It looks like Peppa Pig's smiling face. It's, it's like a Hello Kitty fever dream. Look at it. I'm putting it back in. <laughs> well, what else, what else is causing me the pain in there? What did I not cut out? Yeah, then the marble falls out of your rectum. And you go, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> But you were dead right. He cuts it out. He hands it to somebody, whoever. He stitches himself back up. But he had it so planned that anytime he felt weak, he had taught them how to, he took regular breaks. He taught them how to uh, resurrect him, shall we say, with CPR if it happened, how to give him an adrenaline shot, all of those things. God. And then only when the place was cleaned did he get some sleep, having taken some antibiotics. All the instruments were clean and everything else. And he went back to normal duty two weeks later. And... The, uh, the reason I bring this up is because he returned home a national hero. So his story was then propaganda, propagated across yeah. the Soviet Union as this is what we're made of. This is our metal. We go to the Antarctic yeah. where there is no one to look after us and we do this. Yeah. 18 days before he did the operation, uh, Yuri Gargarin had become the first man in space okay. and they were compared and it just cemented the Soviet identity. This guy is the, the epitome of Soviet Union manhood. He's brave, he's resilient, he's resourceful, and he's back at his desk two weeks later. Let me paint you a different picture. <laughs> <laughs> this, this involves you doing an operation. You, you know, it involves me. All right, but not doing an operation. In 2010, I was friends, I still am friends with, they're now retired uh, professional footballers, but they were then current professional footballers. And I was, for all intents and purposes, the man I am today, a little bit slovenly, a little bit overweight, and certainly not in the same shape as a bunch of professional footballers who had just finished their season. And they wanted to go on a kind of a team bonding, you know, post-season blowout. So they said, we're going to go down and go paintballing. And, hey, Dave, do you want to come? Your friends, three of the lads, like, come down with a bit of crack. The more bodies, the better. Shooting each other, then getting some points afterwards, whatever. I was like, sounds like a great day. Walking out the door, my missus goes to me, you know, like, the lads you're going out with, they're all young, fit. Like, a lot of them are 19. Like, you know, you're in your 30s. Would you just take, I was like, I'll be fine. It's just paintball. It'll be fine. Uh, first game starts. I get shot, so I run back to the base to rub off the paint. That's what you have to do. You kind of go back to the base to reset. Yeah. Uh, and you're wearing the mask, and you're wearing the face mask, and you can't, if you don't look in a certain direction, you can't, you've no peripheral vision, you can't see. So I can't see that there is a massive seven-foot-deep hole in front of me, and as I jog towards it, I fall in, but my right foot catches on a tree root, Ooh. and as my full momentum is taking me down into the hole, my right foot goes, hang on, I'm going to stay up here for a minute. So as I'm falling, it pops my ankle off, as in dislocates <laughs> the ankle, leaving the tibia and the fibula dangling within the confines of my leg. Uh, when I hit the ground, they hit each other. And then I have 10 fractures. I've seen the picture. Uh-huh. You showed me the x-ray, and I didn't realize that was from a paintballing incident. Look, because I, the x-ray looks like you... I mean, there's so many pins in your leg. It looks like you've played bone kerplunk. It's <laughs> yeah. what it looks like, doesn't it? Yeah, that is how it was fixed. So they ran one titanium plate along the length of the bone and then screwed, as you said, I think 18 screws in 
to fix all the little breaks together. Do you still have them in you? I do. I'm still full of titanium screws. And, and you know what? Annoyingly, I don't beep at airports. Do you not? No. Like I asked the doctor for a letter that I could put in my wallet that when I beeped, I could pull out and go, here's a letter from a doctor that says this man is part man, part titanium superhero. Except I've watched through every single thing and they've never gone off. It's really annoying. Anyway, the point is this. Can you imagine doing that operation on yourself? Well, this is what I'm thinking, right? So I am lying prone in a muddy hole in the ground in a forest surrounded by people who are wondering what's going on. And they go, here, the fat lads after falling down. What's the story? (laughs) So they come over and they realize that I'm actually in some serious pain. And they say, okay. And they say, what's wrong? I said, I'm pretty sure I broke my leg. And they were like, right. And to be honest with you, at that point, I had the pain had kind of leveled off. Whatever way my leg was sitting, it wasn't mind-bendingly sore. It was mind-bendingly sore when they had to get me to the ambulance, which couldn't get into the compound where we were playing. So they put me in the back of a Mitsubishi Pajero and bounced me out (laughs) over to the ambulance. It's like a baby bell ad with an injured man in the back of a Mitsubishi Pajero. <laughs> and when I went, got eventually got to the hospital, they looked at it and they said, yes, you've got severe dislocation. You've got massive leg breakage. We need to do serious operations. The first thing we're going to do is reset your ankle. And I'm delirious on oxygen. I'm like, yeah, cool, beans, do whatever you need to do. So they give me the Michael Jackson drugs. They give me this thing that knocks me out, out yeah. cold, and they reset my ankle but it's it's an anesthetic but it's not an anesthetic that i need to recover for hours from now i wake up neil i felt like i had had 45 hours sleep and they were IVing coffee into me because i woke up like clap my hands going woo let's go what are we doing lads who am i who am i healing today i'm ready and they were like shh calm down calm down we've just woken you up and i was like yeah it, it must be two days later like i'm feeling great did i have the operation they're like no we just reset your ankle how long have i been out 15 minutes no way <laughs> literally because what they do is they put you out but then they bring you back it's a two-part anesthetic thing so they just knocked me out and, and i was like woo i am back and then i went for my serious operation the next day you're 15 minutes away from turning into somebody who'd be on The Apprentice. That's what we've learned. <laughs> One of those people. Hey, yeah. Hey, let's, let's sell this stuff. Let's All do I these needed. things. <laughs> Team Alpha. Zenith Productions. Maximum <laughs> nonsense. Oh, write all those down. I like the names of those. <laughs> <laughs> we can pursue them. Anyway, what the point is, in the state I was in, I cannot imagine having to do any kind of medical operation And for that, I'm already congratulating Leonid for his immense, immense skill and bravery. Yeah, he's a pretty, pretty impressive dude. All right. And uh, I'm sure he was used to uh, to cement the group identity, as we talked about. Um, While we were going to chat about groups we belong to, obviously, in part two, um, I want to think about what governments do. So governments need to see which people, which, which people are in which groups, okay. religious, local, ethnic, educational, to allocate resources. Right. And they do this through the census. Right. So I ended up down the rabbit hole, as I often say in this show, looking at the, the history of the census. Amazing stuff. First census, Babylonian Empire. This no. is considered to be the first census. 3,800 B-C-E, counting livestock and quantities of stuff that were luxury goods at the time, butter and honey. Now, the thing is, as long as there's been government forms to fill in, there have been lies on government forms to fill in. <laughs> like You can bet the lads are like, well, I do have to ask for taxation purposes, is that butter? And people are like, well, no, that's um, one of the kids has leprosy. That's pus. I don't know why it's in the fridge. <laughs> that's I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> I can't believe it's not Chinese butter. I suppose that's not honeycomb. It's not. Um, it's, it's I can't believe it's not a taxable food stuff. <laughs> yeah. One of the lads got sick on the Giants Causeway, and that's why it's that shape. So it goes back to 3800 uh, BCE, before the common era, or BC as it was when we were growing up in course, uh, yeah. history school. Um, the oldest existing census are what we would term of census is the 1703 uh, census from Iceland. So that still exists. Wow. So they went around and went one, two, three, shh, that's Bjork's granddad, <laughs> four, five, six. And the reason we recognize it as a census is because they counted everybody. 
So they didn't just count free men. They they counted slaves. They counted everybody. They asked their their jobs, their ages, and all the rest. In 1911, on the 2nd of April, the suffragette, Emily Davison, you remember? Yes. Who would later die under the king's horse at the Derby, crept into Parliament and hid in in a cupboard in St. Mary's Undercroft, which is the chapel of the Palace of Westminster. Um, and it was census night. And lots of suffragettes deliberately tried to get out of the census being recorded on the census because uh, women didn't have the vote. And this was their way of spoiling the census. Okay. And so Davison was found by a cleaner. And uh, her postal address was listed as found hiding in the crypt of Westminster Hall. And that's what it said <laughs> in the census. Now, that is a cool address. In fairness, if you want to have an address... Found in the crypt is definitely what I want beside mine. <laughs> I hope she sat up with her two hands folded over her chest, bolt upright. I'm like, what year is this? But yeah, that's where she was found. Oh my God. But I have a favourite census fact. And Go if on. ever there was a, sen- a sentence that you'd say on this podcast above all, I have a favourite census fact. <laughs> Following the 1880 census in the US, Census Bureau is collecting too much information, right? And they can't okay. tabulate it. It's just too difficult. So they hold a competition in 1888. Because there's got to be a better way to do this. Contestants are asked to process the 1880 census data from four different areas in St. Louis. And whoever captured and processed the data fastest would win a contract for the 1890 census, right? Oh, very clever. So three contestants accepted the challenge. The first two contestants captured the data in 144 and a half hours and 100 and a half hours. The third contestant who is a former Census Bureau employee named Herman Hollerith, completed the data capture 72 and a half hours. What? Half the time with the first guy? Yeah. Next, the contestants had to prove that their designs could prepare data for tabulation, right? By, by age, category, race, gender, etc. That sort of stuff. 44 hours, 55 hours. Herman does it in five and a half hours. Ah, stop. What is he on speed? It's, <laughs> he had the drugs that you had. 15 minutes, woke up. <laughs> Who are we counting? Bring them all in. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He, it was, it's like, it's a punch card system, you know? So, you know, you have a punch card and you decide that that whole there represents marriage. And if gotcha. it's punched, it's single. And if it's unpunched, it's, it's, it's married. Uh, and he's so impressive. He basically gets the, he has patents. He wins the contract to do the 1890 data. And then, and this is where what I like, right. 1896, he organizes this company called the Tabulating Machine Company to do all this, mm-hmm. incorporated in New York to manufacture the machines, and through a couple of mergers, it goes into IBM. No, that's Herman. That's Herman. Wow. Yeah. So his punch cards in the late 1890s, or in yeah. the late 1880s, gave us IBM in the early 1900s. Yeah, and basically modified versions of that technology were used by the Census Bureau until they were replaced by computers in the 1950s. That's incredible. And four kind of initial companies came together to create the forerunner of, of IBM, but his was pretty much the big daddy, and that's where it started. Okay, pop quiz hotshot. What does IBM stand for? International Business Machines. Damn it, he knows everything, this guy. <laughs> I've got nothing on him, Nothing. <laughs> Get me Herman. I need something on Delamere. <laughs> Amazing. So we're going to talk about people in a different way and the groups we all fit into, whether you know it or not, and how just how far we are from taking that group identity and using it as a weapon against other groups and also maybe as a force for good in the world. And we'll do that with Professor Pete Lunn in part two. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to part two, and we're talking to Professor Pete Lunn of the Economic and Social Research Institute. As I said, in part one, he has degrees in philosophy and psychology, neuroscience and economics, and is the founder and head of the ESRI's Behavioural Research Unit. Hi, Pete. Hi, you've just made me sound like a right nerd. But <laughs> <laughs> well, Listen, I have other descriptions here, but I thought I'd plumash you at the start before we... <laughs> Put the knives in. You're going to talk to us about minimal group paradigm and social identity theory. They're not necessarily as complicated as they sound at the start when somebody explains them. I think we should probably start by telling Dave who Henri Tajfel was, because I think he's considered to be the father of certainly the minimal group paradigm experiments. Henri Tajfel is a fascinating character, a Jew who was born in Poland at a time um, where there was strong discrimination against Jews. And he actually essentially went to Paris to go to, to college um, as a student at the time the Second World War broke out. And he ends up, he's, he's studying chemistry in Paris, and he ends up being conscripted into the French army to fight mm. the Nazis, being taken prisoner and spending several years in prisoner of war camps. Now, interestingly, it seems the Nazis never realized that Tajfel was Jewish, um, which was obviously of great benefit to him, but yeah. was probably something of a head wreck for several years while he was essentially hiding his racial identity. And after the war was over and he was released and he spent some time working for Jewish charities, he ended up studying in London as a mature student and he ended up as a psychologist and becoming one of the most famous social psychologists of all time. And given his background, what he ended up studying was the relationship between groups and intergroup hostility and how groups get on and how discrimination starts and where it comes from and so on. And that was his, his life's work. And he made this enormous impression that even today, still undergraduates are taught about his work. And many of them, when they first read it, just go, wow. So what were the experiments that he set up to, to look at how groups discriminate against one another? Yeah, so this is the minimal group paradigm is, is the famous one. And I remember reading this as a 19-year-old kid, as an undergraduate sitting in a library. And I remember reading it and it absolutely blew my mind. And over 30 years later, I still find that this experiment blows my mind. So see if I can give you a flavor of that. So essentially it works like this. What you do is you take some people who come in to do an experiment for you and you divide them into groups on a completely arbitrary basis. Now, it's been done many different ways. So one way is to get them to look at paintings by different artists. And the, in the classic experiment, it was Kandinsky and Clay who were used and people expressed a preference for paintings and were then assigned to the group that was more Clay or more Kandinsky. Mm. You can even do it on a, what I would think is an even more arbitrary basis. I mean, you know that colour that's absolutely bang in the middle of green and blue and no one can agree with it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Half the population will swear blind it's green yeah. and half them will swear blind it's blue. And again, you show them the color and you split them into groups based on that. And what you then do in a completely unrelated task a little bit later on is you have them allocate some kind of resources, points or money. They have some opportunity to share something among the other people that are doing the experiment. Uh, but they're aware of the group that the individuals are in, even if they haven't actually... The, met them or interacted with them in any way. And what you find is that people discriminate in favor of their own group and against the other group. So this completely arbitrary distinction that puts people into groups, hence the minimal group paradigm, this completely arbitrary minimal condition to put people into groups is sufficient 
to make them start to discriminate against the other lot. So the, the, the people, for example, who've chosen that that colour is green, know that they are in a group that has chosen that colour is green, and that the only difference between this group and that group is that they think it's slightly more blue, but they will still discriminate against that group when given the opportunity to, what is it, dole out, as you said, money or some kind of product or something. Exactly right. They'll give more money to the other members of the green group and less money to the people in the blue group. And it's not a minority who do this, incidentally. It's not like just a small minority that drives this result. I mean, it seems to be something that's really strongly human, a human kind of universal that you behave like this. That the minute you're identified into a group, you start treating the people who are in your group differently from the people who are outside of your group. And it's not everyone who does it, but it's certainly the majority. So this isn't kind of, you know, isolating just a small group of unpleasant people who the minute you give them the opportunity to be vindictive to someone else will do it. <laughs> this is really tapping into a kind of human instinct that we have. And for anybody who doubts the power of psychological experiments, one of the fascinating things about this experiment is it's been repeated hundreds and hundreds of times with different cultures, different age groups, different contexts. And it repeats again and again and again. It's essentially a, the psychological equivalent of a laboratory demonstration. And am I right in thinking that when they were given the chance, for example, to give themselves, say, 10p and the other group 9p, they didn't choose that. They, cho- they chose one where, say, they give themselves 5p and the other group nothing because the difference between what they got and the other group got was more important than what their actual group got. Yeah, yes, exactly right. So some of the studies um, did what experimentalists like me do, which is they say, okay, what's driving this? this? Let's try to isolate it. Is it people trying to maximize their outcomes, for example? Actually, it turns out not for the reason that you say. So if you give them the opportunity to give a less equal allocation that is lower for everybody. They would rather have that than the more equal one that is higher for everybody. So it doesn't look like this is being driven by self-interest. It looks like it's being driven comparatively. Now, before we get on a little bit more into what this means and into you know what manipulations have been done since to try to explain this, it's also worth pointing this out. One of the reasons I love experiments is every time you do an experiment, you learn something. Nearly always, they don't work out the way you expect. And interestingly, for all his genius, that was true of Tajfel, because he didn't expect to see this. What they were trying to do was start off with completely minimum criteria and then gradually increase the criteria for forming the groups. In other words, start with things that were completely arbitrary and then make them gradually more real, things that were actually connected with people's backgrounds and kind of see at what point did discrimination start to appear. And instead, what they found was all you had to do was say, (laughs) you're a member of this group. And that was enough. So it surprised the people who designed the experiment. This reminds me of me asking my wife out. I had a whole plan for when she said no. I said, will you go up? And she went, yeah. And I went, oh, okay. (laughs) Cancel all the other stuff. My question is, there must be a reason that we as humans do this. Is it that, you know, we know that growing up that we compete for resources, you know, when things weren't as as, as civilized as things are now, that it's better to, for example, have a little bit for everyone in our group and let those guys die off as opposed to, well, we'll have lots and they'll have plenty because at some point we're going to come to loggerheads. Why do we do this? Okay, so we, we can start to move on to the theories. And I can tell you that 30 years on, it's not so much that we're not sure what the right answer is. It's just the right answer turns out to be quite complex. And there's probably multiple things going on. One of the things it definitely did was it completely changed what people thought. So prior to this, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, psychologists really thought that intergroup conflict was about a kind of aggressive instinct or where groups had genuine conflicts of interest or fighting over resources. And there were people within those groups who were aggressive, that this was where intergroup conflict came from. And of course, the brilliance of this experiment is it shows that you can generate intergroup conflict in circumstances where there is no such conflict of resources and where there is no history of conflict and whether there is no aggressive instinct involved because people are just ticking boxes on tables to allocate resources. So what this really shows is that it's much deeper than that. So, okay, in what way? Now, Tajfal himself and working with one of his PhD students, a fellow called John Turner, I mean, they came up with what's called social identity theory, which Neil's already referred to. And the essential idea there is that as human beings, we get a lot of our identity from the groups we are members of. Hmm. Now, anyone who's a fan of any sports team knows this. 
right? Because when your team loses, you feel bizarrely and stupidly lousy, yeah. even though you know it's a silly thing to do. That doesn't help you. You still feel lousy. And when your team wins, you walk around, you know, several inches taller, feeling great for the rest of the evening, right? <laughs> now, you were not involved in the game. You support this team. You had nothing to do with it. You don't even know the people who are playing for your team, but that it does that to you anyway. And that's because your membership of the group gives you identity and esteem. So part of the idea is that we identify with the groups we are part of and that that not only gives us that esteem, but it also then motivates our behavior to look for higher esteem and that that happens comparatively. So what that means is if we're a member of a group and we have an opportunity to favor that group over other groups, we'll take it because it makes us feel better to be part of, if you like, the superior or the winning group. And that essentially is what social identity theory says. Right. So... I'm seeing something here. I'm a Manchester United fan. And recently, Manchester... I'm terribly sorry. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Neil, for laughing. I was really enjoying that when he said your team is losing because <laughs> I knew we were going to get down to your social identity. Yeah, well, here's the thing, okay? So in my group of Manchester United fans, uh, we would say, for example, recently been have been humiliated by Manchester City in, in a Premier League match. However, as lousy as I felt, I was still really happy that we had moved Manchester City closer to the title, meaning that Liverpool wouldn't win the title, <laughs> so that I wanted the other group to absolutely fail. And even the ones I'm slightly kind of, they're still my enemies, I'd rather they succeeded than the other group. So I completely see this group dynamic you're talking about. Now, interestingly, uh, you are conforming there to social identity theory. Yeah. And social identity theory essentially predicts that your in-group favoritism, that is how much you favor your own group, and your out-group hostility, that is how much you want the other group not to do so well, should both be fairly similar. Because in terms of that comparative um, esteem you get from belonging to the superior group, pushing the other one down and pushing yours up are kind of similar. Yeah. And you've just displayed that absolutely perfectly uh, in a context we know well. <laughs> and that's great. However, here's a really interesting thing. So the experiments that followed the minimal group paradigm or, or adapted the minimal group paradigm go on to show that actually in-group favoritism is much more common than out-group hostility. So you can design the experiments in clever ways that kind of distinguish between the two, where you can give people opportunities to display in-group favoritism and you can give them opportunities to, as it were, punish another group when their own group is not involved. And what you find, actually, is that the in-group favoritism is very substantially stronger. So while there's some truth in social identity theory, and while it may predict some of this finding, it doesn't predict all of it. And actually, it might not even predict the majority of it. There may be something else going on. So it looks like there's some truth in it. That's what the evidence would suggest. But it also suggests that that basic result of this kind of arbitrary distinction into groups, making people treat groups differently, is being also driven by other things. But we tend to think, I suppose, of group identities sometimes in a negative way, you know, in terms of discrimination. But... I would have thought that they're not necessarily always a bad thing. So we have what you would term in your world, I think, a collective action problem. So these massive problems like antibiotic resistance or global warming or indeed the COVID pandemic, where a collective action problem is, is, is essentially, if I'm right, is that the, the individual self-interest has to be, you have to override it for the collective good of the entire group. If we have a strong, cohesive group identity, surely that is easier than, than if we are all kind of disparate individuals. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that is the basis, if you like, of the primary alternative explanation for what's going on in the, minim in the minimal group paradigm. That what's actually happening is human beings are kind of programmed to find the other people that they have things in common with and then cooperate more with them. So essentially, you go about life gathering allies and then trying to get those allies into groups with, which identify with each other so those groups can all help each other. Right? This is essentially a, a form of, sort of sensible survival instinct to form groups that will then mutually cooperate and have loyalty within them. So that's all about in-group favoritism. Notice there's nothing in there about hostility to out-groups unless the out-group the others is are threatening you. It's all about cooperation within groups. But one of the things it can do, of course, is it means you're going to discriminate. It means you're going to favor your own people over other people, not because you don't like or, you, or worse still, you hate the other people. 
but because you have this really strong instinct to form alliances with people you have something in common with, and that helps you to solve these kind of collective problems. And, you know, we've studied these as behavioral scientists now for several decades, and it turns out to be absolutely true. If you give people collective action problems, and it's actually really easy to do in a laboratory. I mean, all I've got to do is give you a problem where I say there's a pot in the middle of the table. You can all throw some money into the pot. And there may no need to be a group of maybe four of you, right? You throw some money into the pot. I will double however much you throw in and then split it evenly between you all. Now, when you stop and think about that problem, that's called a public goods game experiment. When you stop and think about that problem, you realize from a selfish point of view, it's completely irrational to put any money in at all, right? Because if you put any money in, I double it. So you put a euro in, I double it, it turns into two, but then I, I then split it between four of you. So every euro you put in, you only get 50 cents back. Oh, right. But if everybody puts their money in, you all double your money. So that is a collective action problem among four people where if you all cooperate with each other, you will get the socially best outcome where you all double your money. But if any of you are selfish, everybody's outcome gets reduced. Okay. And what happens when you do that? <laughs> it's fascinating. So what happens when you do that, actually, is really interesting, is if people have an amount of money, uh, they, most people want to cooperate, but they're worried about being made a mug of. So if you give them an amount they can put in, they tend to put in about half. Some people will put in all of it, and somewhere around one in seven, one in eight will usually behave selfishly, sometimes more, actually. But that kind of thing, there's a minority will typically behave selfishly. So it's a, it's a well-studied phenomenon. And what's fascinating about it is if you give those four people any opportunity or you artificially create any kind of group identity amongst them at all, it increases the contributions to the pot and the social outcome. So if they have a cup of coffee with each other beforehand, if they get the opportunities to meet and have a chat, if they engage in some kind of other previous activity where they're identified as a group in some way, any of those things, even among people who don't know each other, just giving them the opportunity to get a little bit of group identity as a set, then all of a sudden the contributions to that pot go up and quite substantially. Dave, I just have to get Pete to tell you about the, the update to the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test is a famous test and it's been updated and it proves a similar thing, doesn't it, Pete? Well, it, it proves how incredibly young this cooperation starts. So the, the, the marshmallow experiment is a classic, another classic experiment where children who were pretty young, they were preschoolers at Stanford University. They were actually uh, kids of the, the researchers at Stanford University or the staff at Stanford University. And what they did was they gave them a marshmallow, put a marshmallow in front of them. And the experimenter then said they had to leave the room for 10 minutes. And they said to the kid, if you don't eat the marshmallow, when I come back, you'll get two. Mm. Now, you can imagine that the ethics committee has to think pretty hard about this experiment before <laughs> yeah. giving it the okay, right? <laughs> but anyway, they, they did this experiment. This poor group of people have been studied for the rest of their lives because it turns out that a lot of the kids... Uh, will delay gratification. And the ones who delay gratification, they end up doing better at school, getting better jobs. And so, so this is the classic marshmallow experiment. But a recent twist on it, just a couple of years ago this was done, was to make it a cooperative thing. So you have two kids who meet each other but then go into separate rooms. They each get given the marshmallow test, but they're told they're only going to get the second marshmallow if they don't eat their marshmallow and the other kid doesn't. Right Now, if you think about it, that means your chances of getting the second marshmallow as one of the kids have gone down because not only do you have to delay, but yeah. the other kid's got to delay too. Right, So from a purely selfish point of view, your chances of getting your second marshmallow are worse now. Right? So you should just but eat your marshmallow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But the fascinating thing is exactly the opposite happened. So when they did this experiment, even with kids, I, I think they were kind of five or six in that experiment. I might have got the wrong, but it's there or thereabouts. And even with kids that young, making it a cooperative endeavor with another kid actually made them more likely to delay gratification and get the second marshmallow. So these collective action problems from a very young age, we are really programmed to do this. And what we can see is that any degree to which you generate common identity in, in some kind of group makes you much better at it. This all seems very positive, like, you know, that you form groups and that there is cooperation. And as Neil was saying, there's there are these you know, giant things we must do for the good of society and that we are kind of predisposed to do this. But I I sense, Pete, that there may be some 
some negative discrimination that can come out of this kind of group identity and that that there maybe you're sugarcoating things for us and that there's a whole other side of of human uh, behavior that isn't as nice as this oh i i don't mean to in any way sugarcoat every time you favor an in-group um if you're outside of one of these kind of hermetically sealed problems i'm giving you now in everyday life every time you favor an in-group your in-group is someone else's out-group right Mm-hmm. And consequently, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that what the minimal group paradigm is showing you is how endemic discrimination is. Mm. Now, it's also giving you some real insight into some of its causes, which I think are really important because to this day, it remains the case that you will meet people who politically will try to tell you that discrimination is all about values, that, you know, if we just had the proper values and we thought about it ethically in the right way, it wouldn't happen, you know, and actually... What this is really showing you is how deep-seated the problem is and how hard it is to solve. It in no way justifies it. I want to be absolutely clear about that. absolutely does not. What it is telling you is how difficult it's going to be to tackle discrimination because the social forces that are partly generating it have a positive side as well as a negative side, and you have to understand that. I'm assuming um, uh, like you can hold various different uh, identities at the one time. You might be Irish, you might be a Man United fan, you might be a Muslim, you might be Catholic, you might be Jew, whatever. I'm assuming that commercial entities are very interested in people's social identities because if you can get your product to appeal to a group or even manipulate people to be part of that group, you can sell them stuff. Yes, that's true. So brand identity has developed very much following some of Tajfal's work and people who've worked really strongly on brand identity and what's called relationship marketing, where you develop a kind of group relationship among your customers. Uh, these people have borrowed greatly from Tajfal and Tajfal and Turner's work and so on. So yes, that's true. Also, you can well imagine that kind of organizational psychologists have used this a lot because the more you can get within any kind of organization, whether it's a company, whether it's a public service or a voluntary organization, whatever it is, the more you can get a common group identity within your organization. What this is telling you is it's going to increase your organizational efficiency because what's going to happen is your staff are going to cooperate with each other better and they're going to dig each other out when they need to. And of course, in those circumstances, that's really important because there's a competing competitive force where people are competing for promotions and salary and preferment and so on. So getting that common identity to fight that within an organization is really important. And I think it tells you a lot about leadership because I think it tells you that good leaders are people who instinctively understand that need to form group identity among the people they are leading and to look after and foster that. And I think my experience of good leaders is that's exactly what they do. From a commercial point of view, there's, there's a, you have to identify when you're advertising to somebody, you have to identify what group they're identifying with when they see the ad. So there's a there's a case of links uh, or as access is called deodorant spray in the US. And they did this uh, advertising campaign all around the world for young men. And it was about making them attractive to the opposite sex. And they figured out that it didn't work particularly well in Italy. They couldn't figure out why. And the reason was is because a lot of young Italian men were living at home while they were seeing the ads. They were sitting with their mama on the couch and they were like, well, I'm mammy's boy at the moment. I don't want to be necessarily going out and buying links. And then they, they changed the ad so the, the young lads saw the ad when they were out and out about in the town. So I suppose a commercial venture has to figure out which group identity you are holding when it sees the ad. Is that fair enough to say? And secondly, is it easy or difficult to trigger someone into a group identity? Yeah, so those are really good questions. Um, absolutely it is. Uh, and the minimal group paradigm kind of shows you that because it shows you that you can form a group identity on this ridiculously arbitrary basis, right? I, I want to say something at this point, though, that I think is kind of interesting because although I think Tajfo was brilliant and I read him as an undergraduate and he published the paper way back in, I think, it's 1971, there was someone who saw this coming 250 years before him, and that was Jonathan Swift. Uh, so Swift published Gulliver's Travels in 1726. And in Gulliver's Travels, you may recall, if you've read it, that there is a whole thing about a conflict between the big Endians and the little Endians. About the eggs, yeah. It's about which end of the boiled egg you start with. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Swift was satirizing the conflict between Protestants and Catholics. 
And he was satirizing it, in my view, quite brilliantly. But he was satirizing it by predicting the outcome of the minimal group paradigm, if you ask me, and also the ability of powerful people to manipulate the identities of ordinary citizens for their own ends in order to promote a conflict. And so sometimes, uh, although I'm a dyed-in-the-wool scientist and I absolutely love my science, sometimes literature sees it coming. (laughs) That's incredible. I just want to chant one of us, one of us. Um, Different social identities can be triggered with relative ease, as Peter said there. And I found this today, Dave, and it's the experiment I wanted to tell you about. Researchers at Lancaster University in the UK recruited a number uh, of people who loved Manchester United and saying that they wanted to interview them about being a football fan. Half the group was asked about being a Man United fan and the others were asked about just being a football fan generally, right? And then they were moved into smaller groups, different venue, and they saw a fella fall down the stairs. Now, he was a stuntman, right? Stuntman in some cases wore a Man United shirt, and in other cases, he wore a shirt from Liverpool. <laughs> and then finally, he wore just a plain T-shirt, right. right? And they wanted to see whether the victim's group affiliation affected his likelihood of being helped. Right. If This stuntman fell down the stairs like... I don't know, Ronaldo diving for a penalty in the box. (laughs) And the results apparently were unequivocal. If the interviewees had been asked about being a Man United fan, they were much more likely to help the victim wearing the Manchester United shirt or a plain shirt than one wearing a Liverpool shirt. But if they'd been talking about soccer in general, the team on on the victim's shirt was less important than whether he was wearing a, a soccer shirt or a plain one. Okay. So the implication, I think, if Pete agrees with what I'm inferring from it, is that if you're talking about Man United, in the back of your head, your Man United group identity is being reaffirmed and the Scouser falls down the stairs and you go, there's a Scouser falling down the stairs. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if you've been talking about football and generally go, oh, a football fan has fallen down the stairs. Right, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And and, and of course, the, the science of that is absolutely fascinating and really important. Because what it's showing is not only are these identities malleable and that you can form them in different ways, but they're not even stable over time, that they can be primed by what you've just been doing. Yeah. And there's lots of psychological studies that will show di- different forms of this, that you know, if you've just been identifying with a particular thing in just the moments before, your behavior when you encounter something else is changed by the way you were feeling, by the identities that you were feeling in the activity you were undertaking immediately beforehand. So not only are these identities powerful and malleable, but they're also not constant over time. They're actually context-dependent. And Pete, do you find yourself then, as a behavioral scientist, catching yourself, behaving in a way, you know, that you would see in a group, for example, in an experiment, and go, ah, they are demonstrating exactly what I anticipated, or they're demonstrating something. Do you ever catch yourself and go... Now, hang on, was I actually going to buy that Gillette razor today or is it just because I was talking about that with my brother yesterday? Do you know what I mean? Yes, it's bizarre you mentioned Gillette, actually, because I was about to tell you a thing that happened to me when I was younger where I burst out loud laughing in a really embarrassing situation. I just met someone who was coming for dinner uh, at my house. That thing where it's a kind of boyfriend of a friend of yours who you've not met before. And he turned up and I was in a small flat in London at the time and he went to use my bathroom and I hadn't spoken to him at all. And he comes back into the room and he goes, hey, you use Gillette too, right? <laughs> and pretty much the first thing he said, and the minute he said that to me, of course, my little Taj fell nerve went off and I burst out <laughs> laughing. And I then had to try and decide, right, how am I going to explain to this guy why when he said that I burst out laughing without offending him horribly and suggesting he's some irrational pillar, right? <laughs> Now, later in the evening, I discovered he was, in fact, an irrational pillar, but not for that particular reason. You know. Um, you know, so, yeah, absolutely. It's very hard to avoid this stuff. There are serious contexts in which uh, that kind of thing happens, though. I mean, I think where it gets really troublesome is if you are aware of this kind of literature and you start to see it happen in contexts like interviews or recruitment procedures or you know, other parts of life. Now, I've worked in multiple organizations in my life, and at many points, I've seen circumstances where somebody's got preferment. And in my view, it's because they've got more in common with the people who are giving them the preferment than it's to do with their ability. And I think I can see that happening in the way the conversation is developing. And that's quite troubling when I see that. Well, sorry, just I'm really interested in whether that is troubling or whether that is reinforcing 
the thing you spoke about earlier on about, say, you know, creating a culture within an organization where people share common values and all the kind of things. So they're, they're more of a group. Would it not be more beneficial to the overall organization that people would share these kind of, you go, well, yes, these people are unequal, or maybe that person's even slightly better at their job, but this guy identifies more with the way we do things around here. Well, you've certainly put your finger on the difficulty of this, but I mean, let's just suppose for a moment that what they've got in common is having gone to the same all-boys school. Ah, yeah. yeah. That's why you have procedures to identify which things are useful in group identity and which two boys are wearing the same tie. You do, but I think what I'm getting at here to, to some extent, I mean, you're absolutely right, and I support those procedures, but what's tricky is they don't always work. And there are times in my professional life I've definitely seen forces in action that reminded me of sitting in that dusty library when I was 19. Is, is it uh, easy to move groups if, if they're so malleable? How does it help someone's psychology when, say, they convert religion, well, for example? Uh, Let's stick with the football for a moment. I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating is watching somebody score against their old team. Because, yeah, sure, sometimes they don't celebrate and they do that kind of cool thing as they just walk back and they respect the fans. Other times they go right up in front of them <laughs> and give it the old shh. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely possible. Um, we see it also with people who move companies where companies compete viciously with each other and then one of them poaches a member of staff from the other and it's remarkable how quickly the convert uh, gets their zeal. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it really can happen, but it does vary quite a lot from person to person how easy they find it. I mean, one that's a personal one that you might find interesting or you might not, but, I mean, I'm really aware of. I've just passed 20 years as a guy who was brought up in England and was English. I now have Irish nationality, which I got post-Brexit. Fantastic. One of us again. One, welcome, welcome. Yeah. One of us. One of us. Well, so, so it turns out, Neil, that these days I'm right with you and I have been for a while. And let me explain when this happened. So I'm here 20 years now. I've always loved it here. I moved here from London because uh, I was going out with an Irish woman who's now my wife and we have kids and I'm here and that's the way it works. But there was a time... When initially when I came over, England won the Rugby World Cup not long after, and I was pretty unpopular in my workplace in Ireland at the time England won the Rugby World Cup um, for some of the things I said and using silly expressions that I might, might have passed my lips, like calling them the angels in white or something like that. I don't know. Um, but, but anyway, we fast forward to 2012, and I got tickets to go to Twickenham to see the England-Ireland game. And I'd been living in Ireland for about 10 years at that point. I set off for the game, and Una, who knows me obviously extremely well, this is my now wife, said, um, you know, who are you up for? And I said, you know, it's funny, I, I don't really know. I'm just going to watch the game and just try to enjoy the game. And about half an hour into this game, uh, Mike Ross, Ireland's tight head prop, gets injured, has to go off. And the guy who's coming on for him is nowhere near as good. And the Irish scrum starts going backwards and it becomes absolutely apparent that Ireland are going to get pummeled. And mm. the Twickenham crowd are now going crazy and it's really loud. And Ireland are going points behind, points behind, penalties. And it's just getting awful. And from somewhere really deep inside me, this thing just went, come on, Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> so something, despite this accent, despite my upbringing, something switched in my identity as a result of living and working within this kind of smaller country that's next to this larger, more dominant neighbor. And I think that's also fascinating because I've never met anyone for whom it's happened the other way around. Yes. So to, to go from the, as it were, the underdog to the dominant group seems much less likely. I mean, how many Irish guys have you met in London who go to an England Island game in any sport at all and cheer for England? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, I think it happens. I just think they're taken out. Yeah, <laughs> not one of us. Not one of us. They're just removed. Oh, it's just a little laser is shone on them, and you never see them again. That's what happens. That's what happens. <laughs> the dent of a hurley in the back of the head. <laughs> You're definitely He's one of us. There, there, yeah. There's a certain symbiosis of the 2003 World Cup and the fellow who used a razor in your back in, in your bathroom. In that you've mentioned Gillette and Wilkinson in the oh, one conversation. Nice. Thank you. Nice. I thank you. That's how um, his brain works. One last question: Are you broadly hopeful about our collective action problems, uh, Pete? That we can get together, and if we have a cohesive kind of world identity, that we can solve the big ones. Jeez, you thought you'd end on an easy one, didn't you? Um, <laughs> just, just say yes and we'll cut the feed. 
So, so I, I, I like to be optimistic. And I know that when the forces of knowledge and science and technology are used for good, they can achieve remarkable things. And if you look what's happened over the last century or so, in fact, in what we've done worldwide in tackling disease and infant mortality and democratization and all sorts of things, despite all the awful things that are going on at the moment, we've achieved some remarkable things as well through what I would broadly call progress. So do I think that the kind of science that I've been talking about here and our ability to tackle these collective action problems, and of course the big one that's in our minds now has got to be climate, I think, you know, for the rest of our lifetimes, despite the current conflict, who knows where that's going to go. Um, I'd like to be optimistic, and I can see that there are ways of doing it. Um, but it is an incredibly big and complex collective action problem. I mean, we responded to COVID, which was an immediate threat that's relatively easy to understand really, really well, with the large majority of people cooperating for the greater good. Climate is a much longer term, more difficult, more politically sensitive problem. So it's a much bigger challenge. I like to be optimistic, but you know, if you force me to bet a lot of money, I'm not going to tell you which way it might go. What if I said I doubled the money that you put in the pot? How would you feel about that? It all depends whether you're getting some, Neil. <laughs> Dave, also, Pete didn't neglected to mention one amazing fact about the marshmallow test. Some kids didn't eat the marshmallows, but went as far as licking them. Oh, I technically, see. Technically didn't eat them, which <laughs> is my favorite part, I think, of all science I've ever heard. If, if you look online, actually, there are some fantastic YouTube videos of these poor kids um, in the marshmallow experiment who are trying to avoid eating the marshmallow. One of them almost kind of does a dance around the <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Professor Pete Lunn of the ESRI, you were the guest that I brought to the table to answer. Why would you tell me that? Dave, he's absolutely oh, smashed it out, smashed it out, out of, of Park. Yeah. Croke Park and not... I, I, I'm now questioning my Manchester United allegiances and wondering what, what else I'm doing to other groups. I need to go back and examine myself. <laughs> Thanks a million, Pete. You're very welcome. Thank you. Part three, I cannot believe I'm even allowing you to be in part three, considering you walked by that stricken Liverpool fan on the <laughs> ground. But you told us you've been in that position where you've damaged your own leg and you know the pain of a dislocated knee. And yet when a scouser fell down the stairs, you <laughs> walked, walked on by. Nah, I knew, I knew we were just mess. I knew we were a stuntman. We are interested. <laughs> interested. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. Uh, listen, that was incredible. To learn that that level of identity with a group and then discrimination mm. for yep. another group exists with, as you said, that whatever it was called, that minimal group, group paradigm. paradigm. Like the fact that you need next to nothing yeah. to... To favor one group over another is just a phenomenal piece of information to walk around with your head for the rest of your life. It makes me think, you know, that dress last year that everybody thought was one color and everybody else thought was a different color, that we were all part of some massive experiment that we don't know what it means. (laughs) Okay, let me ask you you, you a quick question. What color is a tennis ball? What color is a tennis ball? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, kind of a light green. Oh, right, because 50% of the people say light green and 50% say yellow. Ooh. In fact, I am currently wearing a top, which Neil can see. I would see, say light green. That nobody can see, which you would say light green. And I guarantee you, f- half the world would tell me this top is yellow. What, co- what color would you say it is? I, I'm yellow. And you think oh, it's you're light yellow. green. Oh, you're yellow. Yeah, 100%. So you're in my out group. Yeah. And I'm in your out group. We can never do this podcast again. <laughs> That's the end of it. Or we can do is like a statue, hands across the divide in Derry, and just well. Do you know what Neil? What actually the- what actually brings us together is not the fact that you are incorrect about the color of my top and the tennis ball. <laughs> it is the fact that we are part of the. Why would you tell me that group? So along Very with our good. listeners, we're all lads. Basically, if you're part, if you're listening to this podcast, you're in our will, group. We're in our group. We will favor you. If we all chuck in two quid on, you know, ACAST Plus or Patreon, we'll we'll give you some back later in the form of episodes yeah. and T-shirts and live shows. 
the way you did that, the way you took a noble, a noble, not a Nobel, a no. noble professor Nobel, yeah. and his ideas, although uh-huh. he could win a Nobel, he's brilliant. Um, and his ideas, he deigned to talk to two idiots. Yep. And you took that and you just made it into a naked grab for monetary gain. That's why we're friends. Yes, that absolutely. Is that is it. That's our group dynamic right there. <laughs> <laughs> Hungry. That's our group dynamic. Hungry. Neil, thank you so much for this episode. Uh, it absolutely qualifies for why would you tell me that? I am now going to look at everything I'm part of. I am part of a Manchester United group. I am part of a work on my radio show group. I am part of a DIY enthusiast group. I am part of a wish I was a polyglot group. Like there are so many things that I'm now looking at all of my Venn diagrams and going, Ooh, that's why I feel that way about that guy. <laughs> I, I serve just for that purpose. Yeah. Make you think like that. Beautiful. And so you have to top it next week for another episode of why would you tell me that? <laughs> well, I am going to do that because next week, Neil, I will tell you how science solved the mystery of feet washing up for years on the shores of Vancouver. What feet? Dave, you're such a strange man, but I am appalled and intrigued in equal measure. I can't wait for next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.